musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, here with me, in virtual form at least, are several other saloners who either made donations to the salon or who made a contribution for my pay-what-you-can audiobook, my novel, The Genesis Generation. And these wonderful people are Lori V, longtime saloner and supporter Max T, Sean M, Joanna S, frequent donor Mark C, David DC, and my dear friend Seabrook, who not only made an extremely generous donation to the salon, he's uh, also featured in Podcast 111, Establishing a Tribal Land Base. And uh, you can also see the beginning of that talk where he does a really great rap, and uh, I featured that in one of my YouTube videos that uh, I'll link to in the program notes for this podcast. Now already there have been some excellent comments about the first part of this interview, which I posted yesterday, and I'm sure that you'll agree with me that Eric Davis did a fantastic job of conducting this interview. In fact, listening to Eric's probing questions has uh, caused me to start thinking of him as the psychedelic David Frost. And uh, no matter what you may think of Mr. Frost, I suspect that you'll agree he is uh, one of the best in the business. Well, move over, David. Eric Davis is now in the house. And uh, one last thing to keep in mind as we listen to the rest of this interview is the fact that this was conducted around the 1st of November in 1999, long before Facebook and Twitter were even a gleam in their inventor's eyes. But uh, somehow Terrence seemed to have a curious presentment about where the net was already heading, as you'll soon hear. And now, here are Eric Davis and Terrence McKenna at Terrence's house on the Big Island of Hawaii one evening just before bedtime. If you look at you know what we're building with VR, what's just around the corner with these kind of three-dimensional interactive spaces and avatars, and imagine a culture that's more and more based on on that kind of interaction. And you know, obviously, there's a kind of sh superficial shamanic or imaginative dimension to that. But at the same time, it, it's it's clear that at least initially, and, and certainly in many of its guises it will be driven by the same kind of chintziness, the same sort of crass, tinkly uh, junk that, that really drives it. How, do you, do you think it's just going to nat naturally evolve such that a kind of deeper uh, shamanic world or at least shamanic analog will emerge in, in virtual reality? Or does it actually require some, some real creative work to seed it? It requires creative work. It requires that the people who build these realities understand how subtle the, what they're up against is and not abandon a commitment to, to realism. You know, the trick to making the shamanic world, virtual world, compelling is to fairly and truly convey it. So you can't cut corners, you can't fake it. So animation and the rules of vermo and all this stuff have to be faithfully executed so that this stuff really does blow people's minds, so that people see, well, 
the human imagination is large enough to accommodate the human soul. It doesn't leave you feeling like you're wearing too tight a pair of shoes. And that's the that's the dangers. It just becomes kind of a formulaic, too formulaic, too easy. Not that the software couldn't use some improvement, but uh, I don't want it to become so easy to produce these virtual realities that there's no uh, attention to detail or no sense of accomplishment in doing it. What would the, the, the kind of ideal Terrence McKenna virtual environment be? Well, all of these, I guess you would call them models or explanations, uh, beginning with basic chemistry right up to hierarchy and management theory, uh, because all these processes can be envisioned you know, as... Uh, interlocking sets of laws and, and that sort of thing. So the w that's, I guess, what we're talking about, is how the world should become more visual, should ride more on a visual, on a vocabulary of visual assumptions that everybody has learned. And we all know that a Bugs Bunny cartoon is a, a land of explosions and falling anvils. Well, we learned that. Uh, we were taught that. So there needs to be more of this kind of uh, slotting in of, of uh, I don't know what you would call them, assumptions or gestalts that can be used as a vocabulary to communicate this stuff. Like a language, a visual language. Yes, exactly. And, and do you, so do you see that, uh, that some languages from the past, the imagery of alchemy or Egyptian art or or things like that are kind of can be seen as predecessors for a possible new visual language? Well, this is where memory palaces and archetypes and uh, uh, all this stuff come in. That was always the hope. It's not clear it can be realized. I mean, that's why you go through the Maya, the Egyptian, the alchemical, looking for these universal uh, gestalts of meaning but they're spread wide and far and uh, it may have to be created de novo. Well, that's part of the, the I think, you know, a, a, a more of a skeptic would really, would say the idea of building a, you know, a universal language is, a, is an old and crusty dream. And, <laughs> and when you get into the realm of, of actually having images involved in it and the kind of hieroglyphics of virtual space that are linked with meaning, that um, it becomes even more challenging to imagine how you can make that kind of thing universal, unless it's the universe of, you know, the Nike swoosh. You know, it's the universe of logos and advertising, which actually is somewhat like this, except that its information content is. <laughs> and people spend a huge amount of money to establish these gestalts. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't. I'm not. Many of our discussions have led to this point where we seem to say, well, there's something about the thermodynamics of information that we don't understand, something about lexical categories, something about how language wants to emerge from the background of matrix 
but something about how we process language holds this back. So then there's a negotiation at some kind of fractal edge, and, that, and that's where we are. But not necessarily. I mean, I, that's why I encourage everybody to think about animation and think about it in practical terms, to look at objects and pose these things to themselves as model, modelable problems. Uh, because out of that will come a language rich enough to support an actual form of human communication that's been very elusive or maybe never in hand at all. Well, it's really interesting when you talk to people or listen to people, how many people who take psychedelics have cartoon-like encounters with beings or... You know, and you say, well, gee, this is weird. Cartoons only go back to 1920 or 15 or something. How weird that such an out-there technical phenomenon could just grab a whole section of human psychology and uh, camp there with that kind of uh, tenacity. And uh, to me, that indicates it has some kind of archetypal claim on, on that territory and a claim which it can only continue to uh, tighten over time. Have you ever seen that Scott McCloud book, Understanding Comics? N no. Oh, that's worthwhile. Is that a good yes, one? it's really worthwhile. Very good. Um, I mean, it's just sort of getting at a grammar. You know, a lot of cartoonists disagree, and they're a very irascible lot, and a lot of comic people are like, no, it's shit. But it's a very interesting attempt to use the form itself to talk about the specifics of the form. I mean, it's really about comic art, but it applies to some of these issues of, of animation and, and uh, cartooning. Well, the great genius of Disney, I mean, Disney is a, my idea beyond Edison or Ford or anybody of what we really mean by an American genius because he, you know, he had mice who wear gloves living inside his head but he was able to create a mechanical technology to show people these mice. So instead of just being put quietly away by his brother or something like that, he said, no, no, you don't understand. Money. This is worth money. If we can show people these glove-wearing mice and talking ducks and, and all this stuff. And then he was sufficiently a true American Yankee genius that he saw how to, to take a flip book and put it on celluloid and, uh, and do all that. Yeah, I think Disney is a very, very far out person. He went to the platonic ideas and came back with, you know, baskets full of them and released them uh, in American towns and cities and, and did very well. I mean, animation is a great place to see the reflection of things that are happening, in, you know, in the culture at large. And certain people take it to incredible heights. Uh, have you seen, uh, do you know that animation called Asparagus? You should check it out. It's about 20, maybe it's 15 or 20 years old, but it's as you know, it's as real. It's very highly detailed, as realistic as a Van Eyck painting, 
and totally surreal. And uh, there's also, uh, do you know that one by Sally Cruikshank called uh, Quasi at the Quackadero? That's a DMT extravagance, uh, a carnival, basically a cartoon about a carnival, but it's a carnival crazy enough to convince you you should go take drugs, basically. Uh, and Max Fleischer was a genius, mm -hmm. and all these people. You know. Fleischer was Fleischer was great. I mean, I think I think that I think Fleischer is the true origin of of underground comics. I think that you find the most pregnant um, uh, images of a certain kind of seedy, like like the way that Rar Crumb presents a certain kind of seediness and, f and f sort of failure of the bodies and spaces, and yet that's infused with a kind of like you know magical eye. So you really have that both in flesh, and you really have the the mania of the Betty Boop, but also a certain real kind of quotidian, almost proletarian uh, um, graininess to these characters. Yeah, He's very immigrant. It would be very hard to imagine post-modernity without Crumb's input. I, mean, I consider him you know, an absolute psychedelic genius. Very few people have had the influence without the karma that Crumb had. He basically did all that stuff, sold the drawings and moved to a chateau in southern France and called it quits and uh, got away with those moves. I mean, that's one of the, one of the thing, things, again, that I just find totally fascinating is like the magic of modernity. I mean, what a strange, strange thing this is. Yeah, and just the relationship of modernity to esoteric religious undercurrents and things which are not accounted for in, in uh, enlightenment discourse. Yeah, what if it just gets more and more like this? In well, other words, what I think that's what's actually happening. Is right. We're really headed for our own private Idaho, more faster, deeper, and with more uh, panache than anybody ever dared suppose. I mean, in terms of build, building our, our own sort of constructed world right. perspectives and communicating them to some degree, but not in a way that dominates ideologically. Or well, and we have no idea how strange the worlds we can create in the near term will be, and yet they will be. It's coming at you. Right. But just how far back to go? On like what's witnessing this bizarre moment in in history? You know, what point are you? Is the perspective kind of sitting in? That's the part I find really hard to figure out. Does, does, that, does that make well, sense? Well, that's the question. I mean, because what that boils down to is how real is it? How real is it? Mm. Yeah, it's complicated. Every age seems to design its own. Uh, image of its own dissolution and they happen over and over again I mean when I think about the 20th century you know I mean Europe which is the source of world civilization stomped flat twice 
uh, millions of refugees, the, you know, Auschwitz, the whole thing. Meanwhile, you know, what went on in the Far East of Asia and the Asian prosperity wars and all this. It's uh, over and over again these cultures create their uh, Ragnarok and act it out way over the top. I mean, Germany, for crying out loud. Yeah, wait, so what, how would you describe that character? What's the character of our dissolution? I don't know. I guess it was Nietzsche who pushed the myth of the eternal return, right? So it's some kind of... Uh, it's like a closed cycle of Hegelian dynamics where it just works itself out. Then the thesis, the antithesis, the synthesis, and the darkness. And then it starts over again. That uh, Nichols book that I told you about, Living Time, what was most impressive about that book was he lays out this idea of like time, and he basically kind of presents a way of thinking about eternal return, which is that we're locked into these repetitive cycles that are eternally reiterating themselves. The only way of changing their quality is to increase consciousness in the midst of them. And so you affirm your, this life, this world, not some transcendent world, and just the... And then try to solve it. Like under the sign of this is always this way. And how does that mean to relate to the real as it presents itself, as if there's no other thing that can be than that? And that, but as you do this process, you change your relationship to this stream, and then all this other heady, heady stuff happens. But it was very interesting. It was like, because up to that point, I'd always thought of the eternal return on a kind of philosophical level. And I never thought, what does it mean to actually live in the world of the eternal return? Now that's pretty heavy. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I've always felt like that reality was a kind of uh, thing that the way you made progress was you grasped it in the sense that you grasp a mathematical or geometric proposition or something like that. That it's something which once understood on some level clears the way to advance a very short distance. So that's what you're always trying to do, is create this lexical space of presumed understanding and, uh, and live inside that. What are some of your wilder ideas about kind of technological situations? Should you be happening? technology or, or, or lying ahead? Well, the vision I always saw as inevitable, and I still do, and I'm very attracted to it, and shall be sorry to miss it if I do. And that is, I can imagine the 20th century defined, I mean, the, the next century defined by a very huge spacecraft that are, uh, that cycle from the inner to the outer solar system. That seems to me the way to do it. To create these worlds which have like, say, 80-year orbits that carry them clear out to Uranus and all these places and to the inner solar system and that these things are just self-constructed 
hives of human activity and they invent their own raison d'etre at each point in these voyages and there's travel between them but largely they are city-sized or larger constructs and the, that must be how it will work powdering down asteroids and I would you know I would really like to see a breakout in the next century how long can we wait for star flight I mean how long before the contradictions in terrestrial existence just become too tearing and you either have to go to some kind of fascism and really turn the screws or uh, things fly to pieces you know? Yeah, but but I really always felt as a science fiction fan and all that 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 star flight, that galactic citizenship, was what you're aiming for. And even if you're the only fucking citizen, that's fine. But if you have to go up to the great council of the Talixilu or whatever that shit was in Dune. But yeah, this fleeing ourselves around the solar system in enormous, that's obviously all doable. In other words, it doesn't require any rearrangement of the laws of physics. It just it requires that we don't all murder each other and we continue to pursue commerce. So this is reasonable at some level to expect. And uh, there needs to be... I wish there were a face on Mars or something like that that would drag the popular imagination. You know. But I see the I see strong movements in some levels for an imagination of Mars as a place to inhabit. It seems like Mars is is happening. I mean, it, it's in the scientific imagination. It's in the high science fiction imagination. And why not? I mean. Yeah, it's a pretty cool idea. I mean, it's insane, and it's like I wouldn't go first <laughs> <laughs> or ten thousand, probably. Yeah. Well, between that and what's out at the edge of the solar system, it seems to get quite exotic. And as what life is understood to be expands. It's all converging. I mean, there are, there is mind under the ice of Europa. Not I don't know mind. That's not, but there's a lot of complicated and hard to define and edgy shit uh, from on on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. What do you mean, like edgy shit? Well, like um, hot water trapped in methane environments under deep ice. You know, there's this late oh, hot water in there for something and complicated chemistry, and y you know they're drilling into this lake in Antarctica that's under 4,000 meters of ice and has been there 20 million years and utterly undisturbed in total darkness for you know, this insane geological and they're culturing stuff out of it, out of the mud that's been under there. It's alive. It's still alive. So that's the Cthulhu. Yeah, isn't that Yes, yes, exactly. So um, if I, you know, it would be a great time to be a xenobiologist or 
And it, it could be Europa, it could be Titan, it could be Mars. Well, that would just be a, what a fascinating encounter. Yeah, that's a great, a great wrap. But that almost seems more likely that we encounter some kind of weird life form underneath, but it's not, you know, I and me are from Orion. We're not interested in you. We have no questions. We have no answers. <laughs> <laughs> This idea has been gaining strength for 20 years that life is not unique to Earth. It must have drifted in on a chunk of stuff. And it's, it's an alchemical rule. It's the rule of homogeneity. You know, as above, so below. Given the circumstances as we find them, what rational momentum is there to think that life is unique? And arose on this planet only. So. It's much easier for me to imagine that on a certain level, but at least the galaxy, or our local part of the galaxy, has some kind of other minds in it. I mean, I'm, it, may be, it may be not true, but it's almost the same way of the way that we model, you know, hopefully model a, a future. It's almost like you kind of imagine that. So that all the, you know, Star Trek even is kind of this weird dress rehearsal for a certain phase of, of this kind of uh, realization. That's just a story, just a science fiction story. Well, but you could have said it of Jules Verne in 1885 and been right. You know. Yeah, it is a rehearsal. And, you know, psychedelics kind of seem like, to me, imaginative rehearsals of some other event and whether that event is merely my own individual death or some kind of cosmic event, event I, I completely suspend judgment on and I don't know if I will be able to I don't think I'll move from my present position, position of like well who knows, who knows? Uh, yes it's the big who knows so what do you think's the, the up with the uh, extraterrestrial imagery that features so heavily in some strands of psychedelic experience. You mean the cat-eyed, that kind of imagery? The cat-eyed alien gray, pudgy little... That and just the sense of, uh, I think it seems like a lot of people just even describe the sense of an extraterrestrial intelligence or... Well, remember we were talking last night about how everything wants to articulate itself. Everything wants somehow to communicate and be perceived as language. When that impulse is most clearly separated from its object or from its source, I guess you'd say, then maybe that's what you get is this Gumby-like pure impulse toward communication or something like that. I mean, it seems to me it's like um, looking at a pure function, a pure psychological function of some sort. You see what I mean? No longer rooted in... In, in its source. Source being biology and the evolution of physical form on this particular planet. Yeah. And so that once it reaches a certain kind of... It can uh, actually walk away from itself. And then there you have it. 
and you're saying, you know, how, what is this? It's category confounding. It can't be. It's uh, an essence without an object, mm. or something like that. Yeah, I've had I've had some pretty profound moments of of feeling like contact with something like extraterrestrial intelligence without believing it even often in the interior of the trip that it was oh you mean while loaded yeah even at the time going okay this is I'll let this happen yeah this is the this is a phenomenon occurring um rather than oh I'm finally seeing it and uh or maybe you just sort of geared for it with science fiction okay so how real was it well I mean it's I mean maybe it's just the language that I use for other that if you you know if you present me with some kind of intelligence or communicating force that seems to be other that's very high you know very evolved that maybe I'm just going to tend to see it more as as alien but even in terms of those buzzes like the kind of weird way that sounds can like form these vibrating matrices is they've often like they often take on a kind of more metallic quality and become more synth- synthetic and with that rising begin to enter into an, an imagery realm that's very peculiarly alien it's peculiarly alien and technological often as opposed to natural uh-huh. that's the place and uh, and that's you know this that's like a lens or something of, I mean because if you imagine if you're on if you know histories if you if you imagine it pouring forward or moving rapidly forward there's a kind of front edge that's very weird because it's sort of like birthing all whole sets of new foam yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) yeah I know that place hmm what is the nature of the entities what constitutes their apparent agency or communicative agency well I think that's the question that remains unanswered you know, that's the grail of the thing. What is the nature of the other is basically what you're asking. Is it a construct, a projection, or a discovery? Uh, it's not clear to me what it is. Do you feel like you've gotten any closer to that? It's probably a discovery, which is the most radical conclusion. I mean, I think that's probably what you think, too, based on the your description of your DMT trip and all that, that ultimately it is irreducible. It is too weird to tell. I don't know whether it was a C.M. Cornbluth story, but it was all about these aliens come by and contact the United Nations and all this. But somehow this book, To Serve Man, comes to the surface and then it's slowly realized that it's a cookbook <laughs> and this really spoils the party <laughs> what about the communications that come in from either the extraterrestrial quote unquote or seeming or the technological world well obviously it requires discrimination to to figure out you can't believe everything you hear 
The demons are of many kinds. Some are made of ions, some of mind. The ones of DMT you'll find stutter often and are blind. Just because something can talk doesn't mean it isn't selling you something you may not want to hear. Right. Now that time in that in that phrase you said the ones on DMT can be. But I've also heard you say ketamine there. The ones on ketamine. Have I said that about yeah. ketamine? Yeah. Well, we need to control me a little more <laughs> tightly. <laughs> what is your What is your uh, opinion on, on ketamine? I think it's an interuterine memory drug. I think there are things about it that cause you to recapture some kind of interuterine state. It's echoic. It's weightless. It cancels the sense of gravity so you don't feel your lungs rising and falling. It's... Uh, I sort of agree with you. I see its fascination. I would not want to become embroiled in its tentacles because it seems to me a little too easy, a little too fascinating. Do you think uh, ketamine is hollower partly because it's just a synthetic? It doesn't hasn't emerged in the ancient matrix of the biosphere? No, I think one of the big... One of the interesting unanswered questions is why do these chemicals have the characters that they do? You know, why do they have these personalities? Why is there Mayan imagery inside mushrooms and mescaline and this and that? And so ketamine's character is simply somehow conferred from whatever strange dimension this is that sends these drugs their personalities. And, uh, it certainly is an interesting personality. And Lily is, you know, John is a juggernaut. Do you know him? No. Oh, my God. John's such a trip. I mean, some people are just... He seems, but he's like, I mean, he's really kind of out. Oh, definitely. Like, you meet him and you're like, this guy's out. Yeah, this guy is, there's nobody home. This guy cannot be left alone at home. And he's like me. <laughs> what a trip. And such, you know, an amazing arrogance, an amazing conviction of your own, uh, that you've got it all figured out. You know. Yeah, a relentless character. He told me once, <clears throat> we were at Esalen, I don't know what we were doing, just the two of us standing somewhere, and he said, nature loves you ruthlessly. And I thought, mm, well, that's an interesting observation, what does ruthlessly actually mean? <laughs> was he speaking specifically about you? Yeah, he and I were the only two uh. people present, it was just a private conversation. He used to have this Obi-Wan Kenobi robe that he wore around Esalen. It was just hilarious. And he would just show up out of the fog, you know, uh, to lay these wraps on you. Yeah, they didn't make too many of John. Ketamine actually distills a certain element of, of the psyche and then just 
it lets that element interact with this whole pl weird plane. And there's not a lot of connections with the animal body. But the tryptamines are like carrying the animal body all the way through it all. So it's all still yeah. archaic and there's sex and there's fear and all of these, an the animals in this space. The yeah. ketamine is like a little drop of like awareness, pure awareness, <laughs> enters into this zone. It and you're is just completely, a bit like that. You're completely, I mean, you know, if you remember like things in your life, they're all part of these networks of cosmic cause and they're so impersonal. I mean, it's a very impersonal environment. Sometimes on ketamine, I had the impression it's like this all the time. I simply don't notice, which isn't a very sense-making perception. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it does have an always-already quality to it. The whole quality of time is very different than with uh, also restrictions, which have a more kind of propulsive yeah, you're right about how it accentuates the animal body and just shows you some kind of hyper state of, uh, I don't know, being. Or even metabolism. Yeah, something like that. Where it's just 50,000% more powerful than you thought was the specs would tolerate. <laughs> what do you think of MDMA? It's, it never spun me like it apparently did other people. It seemed very pleasant. I, I didn't quite ever get, you know, the fight to save MDMA and all that. Uh, I figured from what I was hearing around me that it was doing a lot of good in psychotherapy. And so those people should be supported. But personally, I never... Uh, it seemed <coughs> well. It seemed like very much like every drug as it's introduced into society. It's usually claimed to solve relationship problems, and uh, then well, that's the best packaging is to say that a drug solves relationship problems. Well, of course, linked to that, right on the right on the top was you know the the warning that you could believe that you were deeply involved with somebody <laughs> wind up making stupid decisions. Oh, well, when was that not true? Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember the first time. I mean, that was specifically one of the stories that was told around, and that was relatively early. Like being you mean people deciding to marry the wrong person? Or whatever, yeah, that kind of thing. Because they, they had such an intimate experience. I only had a few. I only took it a few times. I find it extremely taxing in the system in a way that I... That I, I oh, you mean the next day you yes. feel terrible? Yeah, I find it very taxing in a way that makes me very dubious about it. It's an amphetamine. It's yeah. hard to take the A out of amphetamine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. The amphetamine down is really quite a monster. I actually like uh, uh, crystal methadrine, but it's not worth it. It w just wears you it's too just, hard. Yeah, it's too hard. It's like it's on. It's fun, but every it's kind of gear is there. flopping on its axle by the time you're through. <laughs> yeah.
Do you have a position about the relationship of the psychedelic experience to non-psychedelic mysticism? Oh, I think I see what you're trying to get at. Some kind of, what's the neoplatonic, what's the platonic connection to the psychedelic experience? That's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, in that sense, yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe we need to ask the question over again, but uh, the, the psychedelic vision is of some kind of relevant thing. It isn't just uh, it isn't the equivalent of a dust bunny under your psychic bed or something like that. It's actually a product of the well, I mean, it's hard to English it, but a product of the fractal laws that govern information theory. That That's a theme, I mean, that uh, Neil Stevenson and all these people understand, that it really is all about how everything is put together at the informational level. There's no deeper truth. And so all this talk about code and uh, virtual reality and how the portions of our reality might be code running in some way and all of this. This is all, I think, trying to get at, at uh, something about information theory that is needs to be fundamentally understood before we can all together take the next step to the next level. What's the relationship between what's happening with these information networks and this kind of object or matrix or second hyperdimensional... You mean how does our own cyberspatial technology relate to the presence of this neoplatonic or object of... Uh, mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like this dialogue you want to get in on with the garland of letters or the... Kabbalah, or I mean, mathematics is somehow this web of something which holds nature together and seems to spring out of a higher mind of some sort. I mean, mathematics is really what it's all about when you finally get it sliced thin, I think. Hmm. Uh, and that makes sense platonically and from this neoplatonic mm -hmm. thing, you know, that's... Uh, and by neoplatonic I mean Proclus and Plotinus and uh, those people who came about 500 right. years late after Christ. Yeah. Have you been to Ravenna? That's where they have these... Uh, mosaics that are because it was basically a theory of pixelation it was an elemental theory mm. so they were tiny pure undividable elements of essence that went together to produce uh, phenomena well all those people came out around the end of the 6th or early 7th century it was Plotinus Proclus, Porphyry, yeah, Plotinus, he had the right idea.
and you know it was late Gnosticism so all this star magic and uh, really wild theories of stellar well it was when the cor- the hermetic corpus was settling nicely into position all those dog of mm-hmm. calling down the voices and all that. Do you think we're, we're uh, in some sense in a structurally resonant position vis-a-vis late antiquity? Let me think about that for a minute. Well, always in some degree because these fractal things are just endlessly echoing and re-echoing inside the structure of time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this, the, what we share with that era is uh, a f- kind of fundamentally existential confusion about what's going on. So any, any, so doubt itself becomes a philosophical position, which in fact all doubt means is I'm shopping, thank you. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> what about that that sense of this 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 matrix, this network, this thing you mine for language? Yeah, I sort of see it like that. That there's something you that all the metaphors of alchemy, which are you know locating the deposit, extracting concentrating, alloying, fabricating, apply to this enterprise of language and literature and art, and clearly that's basically what it's all about. And you have to get in there somehow to this, um, to the main vein. And once you're there, it's just pure, pure logos, and that's the way I've always gotten at it. I figure that's the way the, the really smart money gets at it. The, the Melville, the Joyce, the, these voices that you find are somehow ch- channeling closer to that mate from a position yeah. closer to that matrix, yeah. or whatever. And that that's what real channeling is, is getting close to that kind of... To that rip, that fecundity. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's so wrong about the... I didn't really get that this ex- totally explicitly, but about like a lot of channeled material, is that I have no doubt that you can set yourself up into a psychic information network, wherein you, e- human ego at this point in history are aware or become aware of the presence of another personality and voice which then you bring through and write down. I'm not, not saying nothing about ontology, something, something about perception and psychology. But the thing is, is that the stuff that gets transmitted, so much of it is so bad and so literalistic and so boring because it's not actually close to that. Because that is so rich with... It's because, as you say, it's too easy. You have no doubt people can do it, and you're right, they can do it. And then, so then what you get is C plus <laughs> right. material. Have <laughs> you seen an image of, of, of the, the, the letters that were on the golden plates? 
The Mormon books? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure, the Brody yeah. book. They have them reproduced. And it's yeah. just, just that whole uh, notion of these highly compressed scripts. I mean, if you imagine like this thing we were talking about in psychedelic space of this kind of matrix of possible languages or possible logics which then end up kind of fleshing out into all this sort of other stuff, that there must be languages that are like farther upstream that we can't really capture in full rat left brain, you know, alphabet parsing mind. It's, right. it's a little little challenging for that mind. And yet it still has the character of a language. It's like the Hebrew alphabet, that mystical idea of right. an alphabet. No, Ralph and I have talked about stuff like this, about, uh, you, you probably know or have heard of this guy, Stan Tanner. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, he is into this thing where he has this shape, and as yes. you illuminate it from different angles, you get different Hebrew letters cast as shadows. So Ralph said... You know, this implied then that there was this hyper object which cast all these shadows. And he said, given sufficient computing power, you could compute upstream, as you say, and toward higher dimensional objects that would eventually shed all uh, all shadows of all letters in all languages. Oh. And that there would actually be a kind of... Uh, like uh, omega object or something that was the source of all meaning. So this thing you and I were talking about last night or today about mining the veins of organized intellect or whatever relate to this uh, this concept of this like gnosis shedding hyper object that is somewhere up in the Imperium. I find that Kabbalistic stuff pretty, pretty evocative. That whole well, it relates to this garland of letters stuff, and I really think, I mean, I had experiences leading up to the thing at La Cerrera, you know, when I was young, that just seemed to imply that sound was it, and that you could do things with sound with your voice, that it was all natural stuff. But everything up to probably splitting the atom, if you knew how to do it. So do you, do you subscribe kind of at least loosely to the idea that behind a lot of religious and mystical literature, at some level of depth, lies psychedelic experience you know, produced through ingesting of some kind of psychoactive substance? Well, I think so, and I think more so since I've had cancer, because I had no idea that such um, peculiar states of mind were naturally available to people and non-lethal. In other words, that you could have fairly frequent brain seizures and experience very bizarre states of body-mind dislocation and have it not kill you. So now I see that the spectrum of human experience is a lot broader oh. than I previously imagined. Because then you, have ima you imagine all of the chemical conditions under which people have... Over 
a million years. No, not just <clears throat> drugs, but diet, temperament, genetics. And now this. All these various things. It turns out the mind is far more malleable than it is. It's easier to... Well, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it, the mind can adjust to a great deal more than that which simply kills it. And so as people make their way through these states of mind induced by brain architecture, cancer, diet, drugs, genetics, whatever, there's a much broader human database than I realized. Well, other than the, the, the seizure itself that you kind of described to me, I mean, and I guess this, the, the, uh, the drugs you're on now in terms of waking up with these completely bizarre things, what are some of the other, like, really unusual mind states that you found yourself in since uh, this all began? Well, it's, they're hard to describe. Like one kind is, I call it, losing categories, where it will become an enormous effort to decide whether there should be one or two of something, something completely trivial. But this one or two thing indicates to me some kind of lexical break or some kind of peculiar... I mean, it's hard to... Mm -hmm. English, but... You see what I mean? Yeah. I love the idea that you, you woke up with the idea that there you, did, you had found another number between... Oh, I, that I discovered a, a whole number between uh, three and five or something that had previously been overlooked. That was a funny idea. And uh, But mostly it's some very hard-to-communicate idea about how... Um, concepts form these things called lexical objects that are like topologically closed so they can't really be cross-related so all understanding becomes a kind of an illusion of some sort wow that's kind of intense yeah, it is a weird idea. Well, now that I have all these medical problems with brain and brain function, I have a much greater appreciation for uh, the boundaries of eccentricity. I mean, now I understand. It doesn't take drugs. There are a lot of people running around who are crazy as shithouse owls and uh, are achieving it on the natch. <laughs> and their, their testimony now has to be weighed as well. So uh, this surprises me. I didn't realize that, um, you know, a malfunctioning brain could uh, leave you functioning enough to report to work and tell your story and presumably write novels and meet deadlines and all these other things, you know, that people do. So, And I don't know how many other people realize this either. Because that's sort of how, I mean, how you feel? Yeah. I mean, I now I live in a world defined by pretty much by prescribed drugs and uh, my doctors are telling me I 
have to take this stuff to stay alive, basically. So how many people are living in worlds psychologically defined by in that way? Uh, quite a lot. But you seem to be largely parents. They're the full, you know. Well, I recall who I'm supposed to be. So uh, <laughs> we're not trading that in too lightly. Uh, but in some fundamental sense, do you feel like you're standing on a different ball? I would like to get all these drugs out of my yeah. system, the Depakote and the and the steroids and all that, because um, it 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 makes mentally moving on a level surface feel like walking uphill. You know, so, uh, and these are mild drugs, I take. These are not. I, I, you know, and what are what about the people who've been diagnosed schizophrenic or bipolar, this or something? I mean, what are these people taking, and what is it making them think about reality? Well, but you, you you've taken uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, haven't you? You mean like Prozac? Yeah. Or yeah. The but those are designed to uh, help you out. These other things, all you deal with is side effects. Oh yeah, yeah. It's thought, a different I, thing. I thought you were talking more about, but schizophrenia don't they treat? Don't they treat with all sorts of neurotransmitter uh, modulating drugs, which presumably are to, there to help them out. Well, there to help them out. The way the they may be there to help the rest of us out. <laughs> you know, to. Like, for instance, this drug I take, Depakote, the first thing that it supposedly deals with is mania. Well, I'm taking a drug for mania. I don't have mania. Do I? Did I? Would I? Should I? Will I? Could I? Do I want to? And so forth and so on. You had any bit of mania in you before? At times I've been accused of <laughs> mania, but by idiots. <laughs> um, and I, I guess because of the war on drugs, somewhat concealed in all that, is the willingness of the establishment to allow experimentation with drugs, the effect of which on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would have social consequences that were maybe unintended or unmanaged. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've wondered, you know, the statistic you hear, Prozac is the most prescribed drug in the world now, and a billion people take Prozac. Is it really? It's something like that. Oh, my God. So my question is, when do the rest of us get some of the benefit of this? In other words, when is the guy putting my fruit in my sack going to become a more pleasant person? The guy pumping gas. Uh, all these people on Prozac, pretty soon it should begin to feed into the body politic as a sort of uh, feeling of uh, goodwill and temperance. I haven't actually seen that. <laughs> <laughs>
but yes, I would like to live for quite a while longer. Um, but it is very interesting. Cancer as a metaphor for modern life and uh, how people live, how they think about their politics and diet and uh, money and all of the, the rest of it. And probably my generation was more exposed to toxin than any other in history because there were not only all the toxins of the pre-modern world, but then all the plastics, adhesives, mm -hmm. and so forth. Well, it's just so, it seems so basic that, that cancer is a socially, physically constructed metaphor for all these other processes that are happening on different levels. It's almost like that plane of the real responds with an appropriate kind of metaphor for all these processes of inflation and, and kind of negentropy burning uh, development. The revenge of matter or something. Yeah. Or the revenge of synthetic matter. But what is your prognosis? Ah. Oh. Well, it's a little hard to figure out. Um, I think it's... Well, it depends on the doctor you believe. The doctor who just did the surgery said he got it all. He has an incredible reputation, like third best in the world or something with survival rates and all that. So uh, maybe he did get it all, in which case I'm the same. We're the same. I, I just have to get strong. On the other hand, the survival rate for this shit is very low. Um, zilch, in some people's opinion. They say, you know, there's no escape. There's always cells left. Mm. They always return. You can only have so many craniotomies. Uh, so those people say uh, six months to a year of life, which is really a drag to uh, take on board. Uh, my own intuition is I'm not sure. I can't tell what's going on. It certainly is a weird situation to uh, have uh, fall upon you, especially a person like myself who's never had, a, I've never been a sick person or concerned with any of this. I had no idea there was so much morbidity around me. You know, whereas Dante, you know, I had not thought death had undone so many, he says when he looks into the inferno. It's a sobering thought. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it and um, <clears throat> what you do is you constantly try to get stronger and hope that no bad news comes down the pike and um, do you feel more uh, intimate with death or oh absolutely no you spend every waking minute well, I don't know every waking minute, but for the past six months, uh, let us say death has been a daily 
accompaniment of my uh, thoughts. And uh, dying is the more troubling subject. Death is the great who knows. Uh, dying, on the other hand, might be unpleasant, uh, prolonged, uh, has a terrible effect on the people around you, and uh, full of fear and pain, and misapprehension. You know. Misapprehension? Well, people don't know what it is, so they don't know what they're looking at. And they... You know, are they losing you? Are you passing to the great, you know, the meaning, culmination, and answer to it all? Or are you on extended wing downward into darkness? And it really plays people. The internal subjective perception of the shutdown of the nervous system at death. I think that's a really interesting question. You mean to what degree are these things different and similar? Uh, yeah, that, that in some ways what happens with both psychedelic and mystical visionary experience and, and certain relationships to apocalyptic form, to the end of the world or things all transforming. There's a, a point where the self dies, and it might happen in a millisecond, but subjectively would be the end of the world. Yeah, and because I think everything works basically the same way, it would have a fair profundity uh, because you would be seeing the primal assembly language code. Uh, but but the whole idea of, of psychedelics as an end, you know, as a as a rehearsal for that kind of event. Yeah, it's like Buddhism with turbocharged or something. Now you can run through the bardo or a bardo. Take the Diamond Sutra for a spin. How does one live your life in the shadow of such an event? You know, what does it mean to live in the shadow of a different kind of, of culmination? You know, or how does one live in, in a post-human? Well, maybe that's how you actually can change your existential mourning. That's what you deal with. That's the peg you move, is this image of... Uh, your own fate or end of life or how it's what exactly all this stuff is worth to you and as you move that around you see things differently how has a lifetime of psychedelic use an adult lifetime teenage uh, sort of set you up for uh, facing death Well, I guess it leads you to the idea that uh, things are probably more complicated than you can suppose. Therefore, supposition is not to be trusted. So, in other words, given how weird life has been, why rush to prejudge death? It's bound to be mighty strange. Life was mighty strange. And... Uh, I'm curious, you know, I don't think anybody would be curious. I mean, it's an interesting situation to be told that you have a very limited amount of life, death, because it composes your mind for you wonderfully. 
and you, you know, start paying attention, asking the questions, and uh, and I have no insight into what it will be, but I suspect it isn't what anybody thinks it is. I mean, the argument that the nature has this desire to preserve form is, I think, self-evident on enormous scales of space and time and very local scales of space and time. So why fight it? It must be that uh, that the that somehow matter is spiritualizing itself or mathematicizing itself or somehow right becoming virtual forms. So, and what psychedelics show is that the world is full of surprises. I mean, I consider psychedelics a constant and verifiable miracle. The fact that that can happen to your mind. So it means all kinds of things are possible. Uh, nothing is to be assumed or prejudged given A, biology, B, psychedelics and culture. Probably that's a long enough list, but those two things alone secure the weirdness of being sufficient. We can call it quits. It's way too. You should get your rest here. Yes, I should. We all should. And those, I believe, were among the very last words of the Bard McKenna that were recorded. And again, I want to thank the Traveler, Alex Chuck Wall, and Eric Davis for making it possible for us to hear a few of the things that were on Terrence McKenna's mind as he approached the end of his wild trip on planet Earth. And uh, by the way, if you were intrigued by Terrence's description of Suzanne Pitts's animation titled Asparagus and uh, of the other animation that he mentioned, Quackadero, well, I found them both on YouTube and I'll link to them in the program notes for this podcast. Well, as much as I'd like to go on right now and talk about a few more things, the combination of a very painful arm and a little spring cold are telling me that I should cut this short for now. However, I do want to mention that just because the interview we heard just now was Terence's last, that doesn't mean that we've heard the last of him here in the salon. I've uh, still got a pile of cassette tapes of his talks that I haven't gone through yet, and uh, my guess is that there's still a lot of new McKenna that we have uh, left to be heard. But it won't be next week because uh, I've got something else in mind for a little change of pace. So uh, be sure to stop by the salon again next week, and I'll see if I can uh, dig up something that'll interest you. Now, before I go, I would like one more time to remind you that Terrence's brother Dennis has a Kickstarter campaign running right now in which he hopes to raise enough money to be able to write and publish a definitive biography of Terrence. And the support from our fellow saloners uh, for this project has been really great. In fact, uh, here's what one of this week's donors, David D.C., had to say about Dennis's project. Lorenzo, I listen to your podcast every night as I fall asleep. Your show forms the cornerstone of my intellectual life and has for the past couple of years now. I wanted to particularly thank you for promoting Dennis's book, and I hope you keep on doing so until the target is reached. 
Terrence means a great deal to me and indeed to most of your listeners, I'm sure. We can't afford to let this opportunity go begging. Thanks again, and remember, there's no such thing as too many Terrence McKenna episodes. <laughs> I agree with you, David. Thanks, uh, thanks for the good, uh, kind words, too. And uh, as you know, uh, the project, uh, Dennis's project, is titled The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, which is for sure an attention-getting title, don't you think? Right now, Dennis is uh, almost halfway to his goal, and there are still 41 days left to make a pledge, if you can see your way to do so. So I'll post a, a link in the program notes uh, to that Kickstarter webpage that uh, describes in great detail what the book will be about, along with the premium offers that are available for the various levels of pledges. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. Well, that's going to have to do it for today, but if you want to check out those animations that Taryn spoke about just now, you'll uh, find links to them along with the program notes for this podcast that you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear a little bit about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.